Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Subscribe to the Hit That Line Podcast Network, brought to you by Breeden RV Center. Breeden RV Center, family owned and operated, a no pressure, laid back atmosphere, and always home of the free maintenance for life. You're listening to the Hog Talk Podcast, part of the Believe and Hit That Line Podcast Network. With us on the line is the voice of the Arkansas Razorbacks, Chuck Barrett. Hey, former guest of the show, Coach Mike Neighbors from the Arkansas women's basketball team. We have from ESPN's Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, also a two-time Dan Levitard Show Suey winner and the <laughs> former heptathlete at Cornell, Sarah Spain. And we are happy to be joined by Martrell Spate. Mr. Phil Elson, the voice of Razorback baseball and the Ladybacks. Razorback Nation, welcome into episode number 167 of the one and only Hog Talk podcast live from the Heinemann Services Studios. I'm your host, Kyle Sutherland. Appreciate you joining me on this extra episode. And we are very happy to be joined by Coach Rick Minner, a friend of mine. And Coach has spent the last 40 or so years off and on, both as an assistant and also head coach at various schools across the country, coaching with the likes of Lou Holtz, Mike Tomlin, John Harbaugh, Jim, Jimbo Fisher, and our head hog, Sam Pittman. Coach, look forward to talking with you. Appreciate you joining me today. Oh, yeah, you bet, Kyle. It's good to be on, hanging out down here in Texas, about four hours south of Fayetteville, and, and uh, be happy to talk some Razorback football here at some point. Well, and I'll tell you, too, right as we're recording, we're in the midst of a snowpocalypse across really not just the south, the entire country, or at least a big part of the country. How are things down there in Texarkana? How are the roads? Are you staying warm? Texarkana yesterday, seven inches strong, minus, you know, temperatures, you know, minus zero in the wind chill area, which is very rare. Uh, you know, obviously, you're from this part of the country, but uh, for this to be this cold, it's been very rare. Uh, you know, we're sitting here without hot water in our own house right now, my mom and I, and, but we're just making it along. And, but, uh, I think by Friday, things are to be pretty good. That's what I'm hoping for too. I, uh, it's always nice to get a little bit of a change, but after not being able to get out for a couple of days, it's, uh, gets pretty tough after that but hopefully uh if you are out without power out there uh, that you can get it back as soon as possible i know that a lot of people especially with center point and various electric companies have been having a tough go so hope you're all staying warm out there and before we get started guys i want to remind you that the show is brought to you by betonline.ag from awards to tv shows to reality tv you can place your bets with hundreds of props with real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine and of course the online casino that never closes so football might be over but the nba college basketball and nhl are still in full swing you can head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50 percent off welcome bonus on your first deposit that's betonline.ag betonline your online sportsbook experts and coach you grew up in nash texas which is just outside of texarkana where we were just yes. mentioning and i believe kobe hamilton former razorback is from that area i know that you had talked with him on a radio show that you're on weekly down there in that area and you, yes. you ended up playing for Henderson State for the legendary Sporty Carpenter. Talk about your journey mm-hmm. in high school from there and how you got up to play for Henderson. Well, it was kind of weird. I had a, a you know good, solid high school uh, life, like a lot of kids do in athletics, was committed. I was easy to coach. I was always looking at things through the coach's perspective, even all the way back to the ninth and 10th grade. So I played football every year, played basketball most every year, and played track. Uh, two or three years and played baseball once. So I was kind of an all-around guy, probably, uh, you know, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, good at nothing, great. Uh, so I wasn't a recruited soul out of high school playing football, and that always disappointed me. I thought I was good. I mean, like all kids would. But then as I started coaching, I realized how bad I was. But uh, I got an opportunity to walk on up at Henderson, and I did, and that was how D2 programs, uh, in, in, uh, NAI at the time, it's now an NCAA two. It's about the same concept, but just different affiliation. And uh, Sporty, of course, being legendary, he would play the numbers game uh, with a scholarship limit of 36 guys back in those days, which you could break up a little bit. You know, he would play the numbers. He would try to get 150 guys out to training camp every year. 
So you're talking probably 50 freshmen every year. So the attrition and turnover was great. By the time everybody went through the cycle, made it through their four years, you ended up typically with, you know, eight to 14 seniors who lasted. And I was certainly one of those guys. I was a starter from year two and uh, earned a scholarship after being the walk-on the first year. We had a wonderful time there until Scott Maxfield, who is a good friend of mine, got there in the recent, you know, dozen years plus, you know, that time frame that we were there was the most uh, notable time in, in school history. And uh, from the 73, the four, the five, the six, even the 17, that's five years. Uh, we won the league, the AIC, the Arkansas Intercollegiate Conference at that time. We won it four, four out of five years. And ironically, the year that was my senior year was the year we did not win it. And we were eight and two. And if you can imagine this, Kyle, we gave up 35 total points the entire season. Unheard of. I mean, that's the average of the Big 12 offenses today, right? We gave up 35 total in 10 ball games and went eight and two. We had six shutouts. We had a field goal hit against us, a safety against us. One team scored 15 and beat us. One team scored 10 and beat us. And that were, there's your eight and two record. But we had had a tremendous run. The conference championships in 74, we went to the national finals down in uh, Kingsville, Texas. We, uh, in, in the summer of 75, uh, I'm sorry, the summer of 76, we had a, we went to, first of all, in 75, we went to, we won the championship and missed the playoffs. We actually got tied with Washita and uh, we went to a bicentennial bowl in Little Rock, Arkansas, War Memorial. And then in 76 summer, we got invited to a, NAI European tour because we did finish number two behind Texas A&I and then had the opportunity to go tour some European countries and play and introduce. We were probably the first to introduce American football to the Europeans. You know, later came NFL Europe and all these other things. And now the NFL plays over there, you know, a couple of times a year when things are right. So we had a wonderful time. I had a great career, fun time. I was a grad assistant there under Sporty Carpenter because I knew I wanted to coach. And then that's what led me the after my fifth year completion and my bachelor's and master's degree is I got on at Arkansas working under Lou Holtz and more specifically Monty Kiffin. Let's talk about your time in Arkansas. So you spent, like you said, 1977 as a GA under Sporty, and then you ended up moving to Fayetteville. And you coached not just with Lou Holtz, but Monty Kiffin back when, I guess that was about the time that, that Lane was in diapers or at least a toddler. He was a very young kid at the time who's now the head coach, of course, at Ole Miss. But talk about your time getting up there. That was a really awesome time to be up there. We actually talked with Ron Calcagney earlier this summer, and I was telling him 1977-78, that was about the time to be at Arkansas, basketball was successful. Baseball yeah. had gotten the college or the uh, college World Series runner-up. Just a really solid time to be up there. No, there was no doubt about that. And I, while I was a Razorback fan most of the time, uh, I obviously bought in when I got there, and that was the June of '78. And they had just come off that uh, magical game against Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. Or I'm sorry, in the uh, Orange Bowl down in uh, Miami when they upset Oklahoma, like 31 to six or something like that. Uh, down is one of the greatest upsets of all time during those periods uh, because Arkansas had never played Oklahoma for either ever or maybe like once in like 80 years. And uh, so they went down there and knocked them off. The other thing was, you know, Frank's, the other, the other twist that people don't, you know, maybe have forgotten about, maybe not the Razorback fans, but the general fan that might pick you up and listen, you know, who was recruited as a quarterback in Frank Broyles' last recruiting class, right? That was Houston Nutt, okay? That's when Nutt and Farrell and all those guys came in from Little Rock Central. But he was there, right? And then all of a sudden, Lou Holtz comes in, an uh, option type of, of uh, coach. So I believe Houston was still on the team there in the 77 run, but uh, Cal Cagney was the quarterback. And here comes along a, a, a young Houston Nutt. So by the time the second year started and before I got there, Houston Nutt had transferred over to Oklahoma State where they were dropping back, throwing the football, which Houston could do very well. He was an all, a high school All-American quarterback. And so he was away from Arkansas for two, three, four years. And then eventually Lou brought him back over there as a grad assistant. 
and that's how they stayed united and et cetera. Then Houston stayed a few years. Then Frank pulls him in and says, listen, you got to go get your head coaching job. And he got the Murray, Kentucky head job. And he stayed there a number of years, got the job done, won some games. And then, um, you know, by that time, Frank was the athletic director, of course, one of the better ones in the whole country because he was such a visionary. And then he eventually told Houston Nutt, hey, listen, I've got to get you and help you get a 1A job or I can't bring you back here. My credibility says I can't hire one double A coach and bring him in here. He gets the Boise State job and stays one year. And it's not even a winning record, but he stays one year. But that's credibility. And then he gets the job in the 97, something like that. That's the year I even applied for the job myself. Because by that time, I was at Cincinnati rolling along, had our best year with the uh, Boise State or, or, you know, the Boise uh, uh, Humanitarian Bowl. So all that was going on way back there then. You know, good times for Arkansas. Houston says, well, I need to get out of here and go somewhere where I can drop back and throw the football. But I landed there with Monty Kiffin, Larry Bechtel, uh, John Mitchell, Harold Horton, Bob Cope, uh, Don Bro, Jesse Branch, Ken Turner, uh, you know, a lot of these names, you know, Bob Cope, rest his soul. He's passed on, but, uh, our paths have crossed, you know, John Mitchell stayed in the league forever with the Steelers just recently retired. Don bro had a great career in the NFL after leaving Arkansas because he was a Joe Gibbs guy. Then you had, uh, Jesse branch go to Southwest Missouri, which is now Missouri state ended up at Henderson state, both as coach and AD. Ken Turner was up there, came down to Henderson, which, by the way, Ken is a Henderson State grad himself. You know, so all these coaches would come and go. Harold Horton was the guy who remained, became the UCA head coach, and, you know, back up the hill to the foundation. And so there's a lot of uh, twists and turns. I worked for Larry Bechtel at La Tech. He left there after that first year and got the job at uh, in Ruston, and he brought me along with him. And that was my start into my first job at 24 years old, down working uh, at Louisiana Tech. Now, one year later, Monty Kiffin gets hired at NC State over in Raleigh. And so then I eventually, uh, through trying real hard, got on with him. And then, of course, you know, how about grad assistance under Lou Holtz the very first year he's there? I'm talking about his 77 staff. Number one, Pete Carroll worked with Bob Cope in the secondary. Okay. Uh, Dick Bumpus, all of, you know, an Outland Trophy winner, I believe, or, yep. or, a, or at least a first team All American out of Arkansas, had come back to be a grad assistant there. And then on the offense, you had uh, uh, Golden Rule, Pat Rule, and you had Pete Cordelli. Okay. So that was loose. Back then, you could have four GAs. And uh, that was his four guys. Well, you know the story of Pete Carroll. Uh, Monty Kiffin got the job at uh, one year after Pete got to Arkansas. He took a job at Iowa State with Earl Bruce. One year after that, he's at Ohio State with Earl Bruce. Okay. One year later, he joins us when Monty gets the NC State head coaching job as our D coordinator, 28 years old. And uh, I'm 25. He's 28. Greg Robinson was on board, which is Pete's high, uh, college roommate. Uh, John Stuckey came over. And that was our staff on defense over at NC State. So I went with Beck. We get fired after one. Monty gets the NC State job, tags me along, and I hook up with Pete and Greg and Stuck and those guys. But it was a good time. Now, in 78, I get there in the summer. And after that uh, wonderful game they had down there in Miami with Oklahoma, Arkansas is one of the preseason national title favorites that year. That's the year that uh, uh, one of those months down through there, you know, Cal has Cal and Lou had their picture made on Sports Illustrated and, and all that Cowans. kind of stuff. Yep, yeah, yep, and yep, yeah, Cowens was on there as well. Yep. And so they all, uh, uh, so expectations were high. Now I've known real I've known Lou Holtz real well since then as a grown man worked for him two other times after there I worked for him at Notre Dame as we've talked about before worked for Lou at South Carolina I was his very last defensive coordinator so if you just think about 78 there I am working for him as a 23 year old 24 year old writing down everything I could write down with Lou Holtz 
because he was in so many ways ahead of his time. And when he was in his late 30s, early 40s, he was an innovator. I mean, he kind of came up with that, that twin veer that he uh, uh, brought up. He, it was a little bit of a copy of uh, the Houston twin veer with Bill Yeoman, who recently passed away this past year, I believe. And uh, But it was, it was a precision machine, the way Lou and Larry Bechtel coached the offense. Now, Beck is one of the most meticulous offensive linemen I've ever seen. And then eventually, Beck got in the NFL and did it a number of years. Retired up there now in Fayetteville. But uh, he was known as one of the very best offensive line coaches in the in pro football history. But it started way back when they were just all putting that offense together, you know, at William & Mary and NC State and then Arkansas. Um so Larry Bechtel is a great, great offensive line coach. And Lou had good coaches then. You know, Arkansas is notorious for having hired great head coaches and many of their assistants who bounced out of there. You know, you look at the, you know, Jimmy Johnson, you know, played there, you know, right on down the line. Jerry Jones, all the Cowboy connections uh, came through Arkansas. But uh, it was a good time, not just on the football field, but like, like you mentioned in the arena and on the, on the ballparks and John McDonald, I believe his name was in track. I mean, he got an unbelievable uh, track program going there that they won so many things back to back to back, uh, all different types of runners and jumpers and leapers. And it was a good time. But by that time, Frank Broyles, see the story I hear, this is how Lou tells me the story. Uh, Frank's last year was 76. And Lou had been over at NC State for four years and uh, making his climb from William & Mary to NC State. And he's kind of developing this swag and this magician talk and this after-dinner speaker and all this kind of stuff. Somehow, and I don't know to this day how it happened, but Lou Holtz gets hired by Leon Hess to be the New York Jets head football coach, which was a strange thing, to be honest, now that you know Lou and you know, who, who wanted the twin veer in the NFL back in those days, you know? I mean, what what calling card, right? That's not like Lincoln Riley wanting to go into the NFL or Mike or, uh, or Kingsbury, you know? So, uh, so he gets the job. And, of course, there's all kinds of stories attached to that job in Lou because Joe Namath was on board, right? The famous predictor of the, of the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, like, if you know Lou, which I do, and you hear the rumors, you can imagine what it's like if Joe Willie goes walking into the, in, into the team meeting late and Lou says, hey, Joe, where in the hell have you been, you know? And, uh, and then you can imagine what, what Joe Namath might have said back to him. And so that's what ran Nick Saban a little bit out of the NFL was player control, you know, controlling all the factors, not just – uh, your demeanor, not just draft choices, but that, that's why Nick's so much more comfortable in the uh, college arena. And Lou Holtz was really the same way. He's meant to coach kids in college. So him and Frank Burroughs were at a golf outing together sometime in the summer of 76. And because Lou tells me this story and he says, Lou, let me ask you this. If, if one of the better coaching jobs in the, in college football were to open at the end of this season, would you be interested? And he says, hey, Frank, I've got a job. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm going to be the head coach of New York Jets. And, you know, I'm a pro football coach. Okay. Well, what happened? Frank goes into that 76, kind of knowing he's going to call it quits at the end of the season and retire, just like Daryl Royal did at the same time. And things aren't going too well in New York, right? They're like three and eight. And back in those days, I think it was still, what, 14-game uh, season. And this is where the likeness between Lou Holtz and Bobby Petrino started, right? And the, and the journeys they made because they left the NFL early and came and joined Arkansas as a head football coach. So by the first week or two in December, Lou Holtz is now the head coach at the Arkansas Razorbacks. And I'm still at Henderson State at the time. So... He pulls off that, you know, Lou is so good in the underdog role. And they, you know, the year before, they had a solid year uh, at Arkansas. But Lou comes in, works his magic, cracks the whip, gets the players to believe, play better than what they are. And they pulled off that Oklahoma, you know, game, that next uh, Cotton Bowl. 
But my point I was going to say was all of a sudden year two is when I'm there. We're preseason favorites now. And I don't think, number one, Lou's good in the favorite role as much so. And I think, secondly, uh, it was too many. It was a lot of distractions. I mean, the guy was gone all the time. He had become world famous. He'd been on the Johnny Carson show a couple of times. And so all of a sudden, you know, you know and then, of course, Texas and Houston beat us back to back. And right there in the early part of the season or toward the, the meat of the schedule, they beat us back to back. And so that's instantly a you know, Southwest Conference title down the drain, right? We're, we've lost two conference games already. And so, so anyway, they went on and then I left after that year, went on down to, uh, uh, with Larry Bechtel, but, uh, that 78 season, we go to the Fiesta bowl played on Christmas day in those days. And we tied, uh, UCLA, Terry Donahue's team, like 10 to 10. And, uh, so, you know, now we have, of course, overtime. There's no reason to ever play a top football game, right? Walk away with uh, a co-win, you know? So, it was some interesting, fun times and some first for me. I played small college football, so getting into the Southwest Conference and under the great likes of Holtz and Kiffin and Bechtel and uh, those type of coaches, and then the journey that followed, that stage was set right there at Arkansas. It's a wonderful place. Whether rare dead stock or the latest releases, find the exact shoe you're looking for through our friends at eBay. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go for that perfect pair you've been looking for. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent authenticators that verifies the logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points along with protecting the seller with a verified return process. For the sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 or more, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Visit ebay.com sneakers eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. With American National, you get a dedicated agent who will help you make well-informed decisions about protecting your lifestyle. Call us today for a free review of your commercial, home, and auto policies, or to learn more about our customizable farm and ranch insurance. Let the Atkins Agency be your agency of choice. You can visit us on the web at theatkinsagency.com. Call us at 501-428-0877 or connect with us through Facebook. Go Hogs! Located in Fayetteville, Rapology is your top spot for banners, signs, and wraps. From commercial fleet wraps, color changes, vinyl decals, and much more, they take care of you in a timely and professional manner. Call Rapology today at 479-368-6490. Again, that's 479-368-6490. The Hawk Talk Podcast is brought to you by Heinemann Services. Heinemann Services is a family-owned and operated business whose work ethic and customer service will restore your confidence in handyman. They offer interior and exterior projects for your home or business, including repairs, installations, small remodels, landscaping, decks, fencing, and much more. Call Corey and his crew today at 479-347-9336. That's 479-347-9336. And you talk about all those coaches there and just, you know, you talk about Lou Holtz and Monty Kiffin and there's so many different names that everyone would recognize. But then you go to Cincinnati after spending a couple of years as Lou's defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Yes. So you take the Cincinnati job and, man, just the – I know that every time I talk to somebody about the staff that you had had throughout your time there – a couple of Super Bowl winners, Jimbo Fisher, a national championship coach, which we'll get into him yep. in just a second. But I want to talk about Sam Pittman and what he what he brought to the table at the time that you had hired him. He was like in his mid-30s at the time, had spent some yeah. time as a head coach in the JUCO ranks, in the in the high school ranks. What did you see in Sam Pittman as a recruiter, as an offensive line coach, taking a chance on him at that time? Just his second Division One job at that particular yeah. time. Yeah. Uh- I forget who it was. I, I want to say the AD we hired. Uh, I was there I was by Rick Taylor, the AD at Cincinnati, in uh, December of 93, going into 94. He And, the, and he told me that was his last act uh, as uh, active AD there. He was going to move on to another job. We hired a guy named, uh, uh, oh, Lord, it's, it's eluding me right now, uh, Gerald O'Dell. 
Okay. And Gerald came in from Northern Illinois. Okay. So Gerald gets there by October, November of my first year, 94. We don't have a very good year going into 95 and uh, then 96. And we're starting to build. And then at that time in 96, I had hired a, a guy named Paul Dunn. And if you look at all my offensive line coaches, every one of them, five of them, uh, were great, great hires. And I don't include Sam, except that he was, he was a great hire. Because what happened was, whenever uh, I was looking for an offensive line coach in year three, 96, and then it was Gerald who said, hey, listen, there's a guy up there at Northern Illinois that's uh, developing quite a reputation. The coaches like him up there, et cetera, et cetera. So we brought him in, interviewed him. And at the very, right about the same time, I was saying, Sam, listen, I want to offer you the offensive line job, uh, I, I think, because I had a tight end job open. Okay. So I was on the hook with another guy, and it was Bob, a guy named Bob Wiley. Okay, Bob Wiley's been in the NFL for a long time, and he's a Jim McNally guy with the Bengals. If you know anything about offensive line play, Jim McNally is one of the greats of those 80s teams of the Bengals and, and all that type of stuff. Zone blocking that you now know in the NFL all really started with Jim McNally with the Bengals. So Bob Wiley was a protege of that, and he was coming out of the NFL. He was on Sam Weiss's staff down at uh, Tampa Bay for four years. And they got let go. And I was always a guy interesting, Kyle, in hiring from what I call the top down. Reach out and hire people who, you know, you kind of think you might only have a year or two, maybe if you're lucky, because of the expertise, the experience, uh, and how they will make all coaches around them better. So I got Sam just about hired. But about this time, I had an opportunity to hire Bob Wiley. And I knew I would have Bob for one year, most likely. So I brought Sam in. I said, Sam, listen, I got a, I got a situation here. And I said, I'm going to hire Bob Wiley to coach the offensive line. And I want you on this staff to coach either tight ends for me or tackle tight ends. And let's make it 2-0 line coach set up, you know, like a lot of people do. And it's all back, back to Sam's nature and his character. He wanted to come to Cincinnati, number one. So, yeah, we had a better job probably than Northern Illinois. But he graciously did that and became one of the very best staff members. And you saw what was ingrained in Sam when I had him. Great technician, great learner. Because he would, he probably, you know, and I know Sam would. He would say working with Bob Wiley probably helped him too. Okay. I think all of our guys learned tons from Bob Wiley. And, and we're not talking about Bill Murray's Bob Wiley. You know what I mean? We're talking about another Bob Wiley is, here. Is but, Bob Wiley uh, the one that – I'll interrupt you real quick. Is he the one that was with the Browns uh, during last – Yeah. Know, a couple, yeah, because he yeah. – See, he became an internet sensation because I don't know if oh, you yeah. saw the Oh, yeah. I mean, he's well. bounced around. Wiles is a, is a character in his own right also. Well, uh, he, he, a little a big reason why he became famous to at least the viewer is – I don't know if you saw the hard knocks. I think it was during Baker Mayfield's – rookie season when the hard knocks came there and every time he he went viral on twitter and facebook and all the social medias because every time he would say hut his belly would come up and everybody made a bunch of memes and gifts and all that stuff about it oh and yeah he, he went yeah, viral because of that. <laughs> yeah he was always a, a girthy type guy yeah. big uh he's from uh originally i think up in rhode island or new england so he's got that accent still you know of a far easterner and uh so so Wiles was on our staff as it turned out for one year. Okay. And Sam worked right alongside of him. And I think he learned some things if he was honest about it from Bob Wiley and Sam, but that's also the same year. You got to keep in mind. 96 was the same exact year. I hired Rex Ryan and I hired Don Martindale as a grad assistant coming out of Notre Dame's coaching. Okay. Uh, John Harbaugh was still on that staff. Okay. So he had, Harb's coaching the running backs. You had Sam coaching the tight ends. Wiles coaching the old line. Rex running the defense. Don Martindale being one of the linebacker coaches. Okay, so just in that group right there, there were others. Kim Dameron was on that staff. Okay, uh, coaching the secondary with Rex, and uh, so that was a really really good staff. Just just that group of them. There were certainly a few others. My coordinator Greg Seaman ended up being on that Cleveland staff 
that you just talked about with Bob Wiley also. But uh, and I just had a great talk with him the other day. But I was going to take Sam. I knew I was going to lose Bob. So that didn't hurt me because I knew I had Sam waiting in the wings, right, to take over the offensive line. And about that time, he gets hired down at Oklahoma under John Blake. And that was a great hire for Blake because, again, the same connection you just talked about were even more prevalent down there, uh, down here in this part of the country because of his JUCO recruiting and his, you know, he's from the Oklahoma area. I mean, I think he grew up in Oklahoma and uh, or somewhere over in there. So it was a great hire and a great opportunity for Sam Pittman to go to Oklahoma, shoot you in the Big 12, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so I, I was disappointed that I lost him. And then I ended up having to hire going into 97, Larry Zerline. And Larry ended up the last 15 years in the NFL. Great, great guy. You know, so I was very fortunate to always have good offensive line coaches at our program at Cincinnati. And I count Sam in that group, even though he never truly got to coach, you know, tackle to tackle. And, uh, but that was what happened was Sam goes to Oklahoma, works with Blake one year. And it was Ron Cooper, of course, a guy that just coached with the Razorbacks and uh, recently with uh, Chad Morris. And uh, down at A&M, he's been a 15-year guy. Ron and I worked together twice. Uh, Ron's been a head coach at Louisville, all these places. But uh, Coop at that time was the head coach at Louisville. Louisville and Cincinnati rivals. It's about mid part of the season even, not even real late, just about mid part of the season. He comes up to me and says, Rick, I got to tell you something now. You might already know this. He said, you're going to lose Rex Ryan when this season's over. I said, to who? He says, to Oklahoma said, so I've already talked to Blake. And, uh, cause what happened was Sam went down there and told on him, right. And he says, Oh, you've got to hire this Rex Ryan from Cincinnati. You know, I just worked with him the year before. So I lose Rex after the 97 season to Oklahoma, but it was Sam Pittman's fault. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, he, he, he's the one that put it in Blake's ear about, well, oh, you've got to hire this Rex Ryan guy, you know? So I ended up losing another great coach, another NFL head coach, you know, and, but, uh, because Sam was a great staff guy, Sam and Rex and Wink, uh, John Harbaugh, those guys got along like crazy. I mean, they really, it really was a good group. And, uh, so there again, Jamie and, and Sam pick up, move down to Oklahoma and they stay there. 96 Rex comes down in 97, Phil Bennett joins them. Uh, in 97, you know, Phil's an old friend of mine from Marshall, Texas, just recently got hired over at North Texas, but he's run the gamut all his life and Phil and I are the same age. And so, uh, he ended up with, um, but they all got fired, right? John Blake got fired, rest his soul. He passed away in the last 12 months also. But, um, then Rex goes to, uh, Kansas state gets hired because Bill Snyder calls me, Rick, tell me about Rex Ryan. I said, I'd hire him today. Well, he ends up hiring him. Uh, Sam, I forget where Sam went right after Oklahoma, uh, whether he hooked up with, uh, uh, oh, uh, he went over at one point with North Carolina with Butch Davis. I don't know at what time did that flow for Sam, you know, uh, but he did all that at North Carolina long before Sam got into the SEC, you know, and hooked up at Arkansas with Cheney and those guys and then down with, with Kirby and then back, you know, back to Arkansas. but. Uh, uh, and there's some few stops in between, I'm sure. But uh, but I just was blessed to have so many good guys. And Sam Pittman was one of those guys. He was a great recruiter. He His players responded to him now as I hear they respond to him right now at Arkansas. He is a, you know, he is a player's guy all the way, but has been around enough and old enough now. Uh, everybody knows who's in charge but he doesn't ever have to tell anybody who's in charge. He's just that type of guy, you know. He's the guy that'll poke fun of himself and laugh at himself as quick as anybody will. So he breaks the barriers of communication down rather quickly because he's just one of the fellows, you know. But uh, I think he's going to do a good job up there. And I want to go back to Jimbo Fisher. I know that you and I had talked about previously when we spoke about a year and a half ago on my previous podcast about – how he was your offensive coordinator in 1999 and you guys had, it was in a losing effort, but had a really solid game offensively against Ohio state. And you get a call from a guy named Nick Saban 
at LSU, talking about this young guy and Jimbo Fisher, this innovative offensive mind. Run us through how that all went down. Well, I hired Jimbo probably when no one else would, not not discriminating him, but as a coordinator. He was like 33 years old, been the quarterback coach for Terry Bowden down at Auburn. And he's looking for a job like we all do when our when our head guy gets let go. And I had some older guys on my staff. I had Larry Zerline. I had Joe Daniels, rest his soul. He was an NFL coordinator. You know I mean? I had some good guys. And everybody told me I should name Joe on my staff in this particular case the coordinator. And I kind of knew the strengths and the weaknesses of the people. I think I can evaluate people pretty well. And I said, no, it's just not right, fellas, right now. But I'm going to go looking. And I continue to search, and then I get this phone call from this young Jimbo Fisher. And when I fly down to Atlanta, he drives over, of course, from Auburn. And we sit there, and I can generally tell within the first few minutes of an interview, just some knack I have of identifying, do I really want to continue this on, and how long is, you know, is this interview going to go? And Jimbo had my interest right up in the first you know, five to six minutes. Um, he's... He's a guy that is nowadays, this is 20 years later, right? It's 21, 22 years later now than he is today. He's regarded as one of the very best guys in the business right now. But you trace it all the way back. And uh, I interviewed him and and got real infatuated because of, number one, uh, his view of the game. And I still think it happens this way, but his view of the game is through the eyes of the quarterback. He was a quarterback. And I think he just sees the game and calls a good game. You know, he's still a little bit old fashioned in the way he looks at things. You know, he's still going to have lead blockers and fullbacks, but he's still going to get in 10 personnel, 11 personnel and spread you out a little bit. But he never gets too far away from that old Terry Bowden, Rick Trickett, uh, that old Auburn offense that they used to run all the time. He's never, never gotten too far away from that, even though he has progressed through the modern day spread. And he's close to Rich Rodriguez and all those guys. But I got him on board. We start to play our games. It turns out 99 was not a productive year for us, except we were a hard team to play. We could not put the ball through the uprights uh, with kickers, which is why we did not win many games. But when we went up to the horseshoe up in Columbus, uh, after having beaten Wisconsin the week before, that shows you how we were. We didn't win a single Conference USA game but we beat Wisconsin and almost beat Ohio state. That's just the kind of team we had. And that was the year. And, Ron, uh, was that when Ron Dane won the Heisman trophy in 99? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or he might've won it the year before. Uh, if not, he did win it that year. They had gone to the Rose bowl the year before also with Barry. And then they come to our place. We beat, we beat them 17, 12. They were eighth ranked in the country at that time. It was the highest, you know, it was the best uh, win in UC history in terms of beating the ranked school. And, um, but we go up the very next week to, uh, Ohio state and, um, you know, we let it fly. We had a good game plan. We let it fly. They were good, solid team, obviously, as they always were. And we go up there and put close to 500 yards on them, spread them out, do some things. We're well coached. And, uh, and we hung in there real well. I mean, usually what happens is it's hard usually to win those kind of games. When you're playing up, your defense has to play great. Because you got to hold that other team down. You know, you're not going to outscore generally those other teams when you're playing like that. And so we played decent on defense, not great. We hung in there on offense and we got beat. I don't know what that score was 35 to 20 something, but we looked pretty good. We just got out manned at spaces and places and, and uh, things like that. And so it was fast forward a couple of months into the season. I'm out recruiting on the road. And uh, I get a call by Nick Saban, who had just left Michigan State and taken the job at LSU. And the old story has it that when Nick takes the job at LSU, he calls back and says, hey, I'm sending the school plane up there. And anybody on this staff that wants a job at LSU, you have one. Just get on that plane at five and it'll come back. And that's kind of how he got the word to everybody of, you know, who was going to have a job nobody got on the plane, which tells you a little bit, you know, there's certainly a hidden story there. And, uh, but nobody got on that plane. It came back. So Jimbo, I'm sorry, uh, Nick had to start building a staff over from scratch. 
So now I get that phone call and he tells me that story of saying, listen, I watched your game on both sides of the balls. I always do. I was impressed by how you guys played Ohio State. And he says, when those kind of things occur, Rick, he says, I write guys' names down. He says, I looked up who your offense coordinator was, wrote down Jimbo Fisher. And I said, if I ever have a reason to expand or explore, you know, I'm going to call Jimbo Fisher. And he says, I'm at LSU. I need an offensive coordinator. And I want to talk to him if, you, you know, if that's okay with you. And he followed the right protocol. And I said, sure. He said, well, tell me about him. Tell me your thoughts. Tell me your opinions. And I think I was dead on. I mean, Jimbo was, uh, you know, kind of a chaotic, organized guy. He was a screamer, louder, loud guy. He sees the game. He calls the game. Uh, kind of organized chaos. You know, he wore sweats around the office all the time, never wanted to dress up, just kind of a scroungy, uh, mad scientist, you know, type guy, which means he's brilliant, but uh, uh, had solid organizational skills, but he'd always, just like he does right now, if you watch him on the sideline, he's got a notepad with him all the time, right? Uh, along with his game plan sheet, he's got a notepad, freaking write things down. He always had a notepad. And just like Lou always had the manila folder, but you'd go in there on the board in his office and he'd have stuff scratched out everywhere. You know, since I coach, I think this will work real good. He could pick out a play. Uh, he knew how to attack coverages. He knew how to attack people. Um, uh, and you know, he calls the game and I, and I stepped aside and let him call the game. And, and uh, I was more on offense at that time. So I can really speak to how I think Jumbo was all the time. I wasn't in the defensive meetings anymore. I was kind of the CEO head coach, but I had gotten into offense and I was very, very impressed with this guy. And then when Nick asked me about him, I told him, and I think later I ran into Nick and uh, uh, years later and I said, well, how was, uh, how was it with Jimbo? I said, Rick, you described him exactly like he is, but it worked for him, you know, and it's obviously worked since, but he goes down to LSU and, you know, no, uh, took the job. I know what he made when he got there. I know what these guys are making today. It's just bizarre, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. But uh, he went down there and did a great job. They won that title in 02 or so. And and then uh, not long after, you know, Nick took off and went to the NFL. And for whatever reason, I don't know the personal reasons why Jimbo did not make that journey with Nick. And uh, then Nick stayed too, came to Alabama, been there ever since, rest of history there. But Jimbo, now, when I get fired uh, a year or two later, uh, the AD at Cincinnati, a guy named Bob Gowen, the first guy he wanted to offer and, and give that job at Cincinnati to following me was Jimbo Fisher. And he thought he had him locked up. And, um, and then he somehow he decides not to do it and backs out. And then, of course, it turns out to be a good move for him because he stayed at LSU, won another title with Les, and then ends up with the Bowdens, which he was raised with in uh, West Virginia, and uh, went down there as the head coach in waiting, which, you know, was more fashionable 10, 12 years ago than it is now. But uh, he got that job. They got better on offense, and as always is the case, whenever you hire him like that, and if the guy does well, the fan base starts accelerating and say, well, why don't we go ahead and make him the head coach now? And that's really what happened at Florida State. They got rid of Bobby before Bobby was ready to be rid of. Not that he hadn't had a great career, but he wasn't really ready to go after that one or two years that Jimbo was the in-waiting guy. But he did there. He tore that program down from scratch. Uh, even after being there under Bobby, he goes in and strikes a match to it, tears it all down on how they internally do everything and put in the Nick Saban way. I mean, and that got them rolling, got him going up. He stayed there seven or eight years, won a national title. And then I think it began to run out of steam for him. And, you know, the appeal of the SEC, the A&M job's a good job. And and uh, the, the thing you have to keep your eyes on is what happens to Ed Ogeron long-term will, will have an impact directly on Jimbo Fisher because his favorite AD is back over at LSU right now. The guy that hired him at AM has now since gone back to LSU. So you have to keep your eyes on that one, you know, whether there's some, st some steep buyouts or what has Jimbo got done by that time. 
Uh, I've already started hearing rumors about Ed, but, um, you know, for him, I hope he work. I hope it works and hope he gets it back on track after last year. But, uh, if something ever did happen to Ed, the, the real food for thought would be is Jumbo in the mix at LSU instantly the, the day that happens. And, um, that's again, just all putting the pieces together and the speculations, not saying I know what I'm talking about, but that would not surprise me because he loved it at LSU. Uh, LSU, you know, you had to say it to the Texas fans around here, but it's still a better job than A&M. And uh, although, uh, although Jimbo's getting it up there really, really good right now, um, admiring the job he's doing. He went out and hired Elko. He went against Elko while in the ACC over at Wake Forest, and that's how he knew him and how he knew he was pretty good. So, uh, anyway, he did a good job for me, did a good job for Nick, then Les, and then for Bobby Bowden. Now he's on his own over there at uh, A&M doing a really good job. He's hired some of the young friends that I know. Hey, Coach, one of the last questions that I have for you as we close out here, like I mentioned at the opening, you've been around to various universities. You've been to the NFL. You've coached in semi-pro the game has evolved so much since the late 70s, early 80s. You look at the, the opt-outs now, like it all started with with players leaving early after their junior year or at least being three years out of high school. But with opt-outs and just kind of the way that the game has become, committing on Twitter or various social media platforms, do you feel that the way that it is now uh, has been better for the game uh, just with the way that it has evolved into? Oh, I think the style of the game might be more fun and entertaining and all that in terms of all the air ball, the spread, the option quarterbacks that can now go back to playing uh, in spread offenses. I think that's all good. It really taxes the defenses. All your rules are offensive friendly. Uh, the fans would rather see high scoring games than defensive shutouts and, you know, that type of thing. As far as the opt outs, before, as far as what's coming down the pike here with this uh, image and likeness, I don't really like any of that. I don't think that's going to be good for the game. I think Congress is getting involved in a sport they have no business getting involved in. Uh, is it the old boys club? No, not really. But the, there's a misnomer out there. There certainly is revenues being made. Now, take COVID out of this, right? Let's go back two or three years. Take COVID out of it because people have suffered greatly in covid uh, I'm talking about athletes, programs, financials, all of that's been disrupted in the last 12 months. So we can't say that life hopefully gets back closer to a normal. But when life is good, there's a percentage of Division One college football programs that make money and make good money, TV contracts and the like. And the NCAA and big time conferences, they all brag about money. It's like a it's like a bragging right, but then the players turn right around like like union workers and say, you know, we deserve some of that. And I don't believe they at all deserve what it is they think they're gonna be asking for here shortly. And that's like a strong, strong piece of the pie, much like a union would demand, like a major league baseball union. You know, they're never gonna need to be where they get fifty percent of the proceeds of the revenues. The life of college football players is pretty good right now, as it is. Can it get a little bit better? Sure. But I don't think just because you get a scholarship and a Division One pro football program that you are to have uh, life insurance or, or medical coverage care for you the rest of your life. That, that to me, is not, should not ever be afforded just because you're a college graduate. You know, so get out in the world, make it, make it in the NFL, go work for a living like everybody else has to do, uh, whatever your insurance coverage concepts are, whatever our country's headed for with insurance, that type of thing. But to say I play college football, so I've got medical coverage for life. I don't totally agree with that. Is it about overpaying them? Uh, I think you're going to run into problems with the transfer portal. It works for sometimes and against you. I think there's a lot of bugs in it that need to be worked out. Like, uh, I don't know the exact ruling now that if you lose after spring practice, you got about four players that are disgruntled with you. They're not going to get playing time, whether they travel up or travel down the food chain. They leave your program. Well, you're high and dry. How can you replace those numbers? Is it a equal or, or is it an initial counter if you replace them with anybody? Or after two years, when you're dealing with juniors and seniors, are they initial counters anymore? So all of those logistical problems about how you keep your roster at full speed. 
the the first glance at the opt out concept. I'm sorry, the uh, the the transfer portal concept because there's no penalty. When will mid majors ever have a superstar on their team anymore? That's got let's say junior senior year left. You know, he might opt out to the NFL. That's fine because you can't do that for three years anyway. But for that guy to say, you know, I'm down there at Arkansas State and I want to go over there and play on the hill just to test my metal. That's unfair to Arkansas State. It's maybe not unfair to the kid, you know, to see if he can't step up. And that's okay if it happens. How do you, how does Arkansas State get compensated? You know, how do they get a guy back? Or, or are they hamstrung with initials and counters and those types of things? So it's going to work for your program. Sometimes it's going to work against your program. If it's the betterment of the kid, yeah, it's good. It's got its good uh, backing behind it. But there's got to be some real thought put into the consequences. Uh, how does it affect a team's numbers after spring training? that they either gain a player who wants to come to them and say, no, I'm sorry, we're full, or the players they lose. So there are some logistical answers I would like to hear. I don't like the image and likeness because I think it's going to destroy the morale on the team. I think it's going to destroy the chemistry of a locker room where the star players start making money outside of the, the building, so to speak, and not be regarded as illegal cheating. I think that's going to help bring teams down a little bit, you know. Uh, you got this quarterback who decides to come because he gets paraded down to the car dealer and he's going to make, you know, $100,000 this year for playing for whoever. Uh, the next two quarterbacks don't get a dime. I just don't think it's – I don't think college football is ready to be 100% pro football. And it is in that case if you just start paying guys like free agents, you know. And uh, so I'm not, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, so I'm a little bit more on the outside looking in. But I do think these things present some problems for the future. Well, Coach, it's been fun as always. I know we text a lot and talk on Facebook and all that, but I could sit here and, and listen to stories of just your career throughout the, the last 40 or so years, just about what you the guys that you coached with and some of the experiences that you've had. I know that we don't have that kind of time, but nonetheless, it's always great talking with you. Well, I enjoy it. We'll do it anytime you want to. Well, guys, thanks as always for listening. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you listen. We are there brought to you by the Breeden RV Center, family owned and operated with the free lifetime maintenance plan. And other than that, guys, we will catch you next time for Kyle Sutherland or for, for Rick Minner. My name is Kyle Sutherland. We will catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.